The restriction and legislation of non-compete agreements is gaining traction around the country. In July, President Biden signed an executive order that discussed the regulation of non-compete agreements, which in the past has only been the province of the states. To stay ahead of the game, both employers and executives need to know what changes to expect and how to best prepare for the future. To help bring all this into focus, we've created a six-part series called The Emerging New Era of Non-Competes and Trade Secrets. I'm Randall Rubin King, and you're listening to Baker Hosts. Our sixth and final episode, Future Shock, How to Protect Trade Secrets When Non-Competes Become Truly Disfavored, discusses how companies and employees have to change their approaches to non-competes and trade secrets enforcement to adapt to the changing legal landscape. Our guests today are partners Joyce Ackerbaum-Cox and John Siegel, co-chairs of Baker Hostetler's Non-Compete and Trade Secrets team. Let's listen in. My name's John Siegel. I'm here with Joyce Ackerbaum-Cox. We're the co-leaders of the Baker and Hostetler National Non-Compete and Trade Secret Practice Group. Here for the Non-Competes and Trade Secrets, today is titled Future Shock, How to Protect Trade Secrets When Non-Competes Become Truly Disfavored. Let me just quickly give you a very oversimplified summary of what we've been talking about in the last five sessions in terms of the trends in this area. What we've been describing and analyzing is a rapid and ongoing change in the world of non-compete and trade secrets law. The basic conclusion and advice is because of such rapid change, we really can't rely on our old knowledge and our old strategies that we and our companies and our clients have, have done for years. There needs to be a revisiting and a, and a re-strategizing in a lot of areas. Five years in, the Federal Defend Trade Secrets Act hasn't yet really changed the law materially, although it has very clearly and substantially moved cases involving trade secrets claims to the federal courts. But paradoxically, the DTSA has not met, at least yet, its stated objective of unifying the law nationally. And at the same time, on a parallel track, state laws are becoming ever more divergent for reasons we've discussed and will discuss today. There is, it's fair to say, a national movement to restrict and limit the use of non-compete agreements. State statutory prohibitions and regulations on the use of non-competes for lower salaried employees are becoming prevalent. Attacks and limitations, both in the courts and statutorily on the use of non-competes for purposes of what some call restraints of trade, protecting client and employee relationships are on the defensive. There's a distinct possibility of federal rulemaking by the Federal Trade Commission, as we've discussed. And in addition, the use of non-competes uh, without notice or without additional consideration is also subject to revisiting and reevaluation in a lot of jurisdictions. At the same time, as we discussed in the, our fourth session, 
extraterritoriality and the use of the DPSA to seek to protect trade secrets globally beyond the borders of the United States is clearly the next wave that's happening in the federal courts and we all need to follow that closely. And at the same time, as we discussed last month, criminal enforcement against no poach agreements is here, it's real, and it's something that uh, every company and every client needs to be concerned about. So with that description of what we talked about for the last five months, Joyce, where, where does that leave us all? Good question. I think that it leaves us in with a mixed bag. I think it leaves us with businesses having to be very careful with the non-competes they choose to use, with businesses being very thoughtful about alternative methods that they can employ to protect their assets and their secrets. And with what I would say a healthy dose of we don't know because um, the law is just continuously changing. It is gonna be unfolding at both the federal and the state level, as you mentioned, certainly with this administration and with a lot of pending legislation in other states and certainly legislation that's already passed. So while the kind of the topic of this is how to protect trade secrets when non-compete become truly disfavored, before we get more specific, I wanna talk about just kind of five key takeaways or recommendations when we're talking about non-competes themselves. Recent kind of studies show that 18% of the current U.S. workforce is subject to a non-compete and about 38% of workers have at some point been subject to a non-compete. So it's very prevalent out there. And all of our, you know, many of our clients, many of you on the call today um, have used them in the past or currently are using them. So I think that I want to talk about a couple key takeaways, things that you can think about and consider uh, when leaving here today. And this is from the perspective of if you are the employer drafting the non-compete, certainly, you know, the reverse holds true as we defend a lot of these cases as well. We, you know, this is one area where you do both sides, employer, employee, departing, you know, company, hiring company, et cetera. But this specific advice is really from the drafter's perspective. So I want to make that clear. I think first and foremost is you've got to give significant thought to who in your workforce needs to be subject to a non-compete and who doesn't. So long are the days that you give everybody a, a non-compete as part of onboarding from the CEO down to the janitor or the receptionist. You have to be very mindful of who can harm you and how they can harm you. Is it going to be by confidential information if they leave? They're going to take that with them. Is it going to be by trying to take your customers? Is it going to be because they have some sort of a recipe or a formula or something like that? Is it going to be because you've spent an extraordinary amount of, of time putting them through a training program that is particular to your company? So you've got to be very uh, mindful of what it is you're trying to protect and how. And that's an important kind of starting point when you're thinking about crafting a non-compete. Also, I think it's really important, and it was mentioned um, earlier in one of the webinars by our um, antitrust partner, Ann O'Brien, that's particularly relevant in the antitrust context. If you have a company, if your company has a culture that uh, is one that never has and never will enforce a non-compete, or you work in an industry 
where you have the type of workforce where it just, you know, doesn't work. And there's a lot of industries like that. If you're not ever going to enforce the non-compete, then, you know, it really shouldn't be in the confidentiality or other employment agreement or shouldn't be a freestanding agreement. It shouldn't have it at all. Um, I think that that's really important because that's actually used against companies in a lot of the litigation right now that we're seeing in the antitrust field where they have it and they say, oh, we never, you know, we never even enforce it. That's actually used against them. The second kind of takeaway is that think about other ways that you can seek to protect your company's legitimate business interests other than non-compete. So can you rely on a non-solicitation agreement? And of course, this is in states where you know, non-solicitations are viewed differently than non-competes. And I believe John talked a little bit about that in his last webinar. But you know, non-solicitations may very well protect what you're seeking to protect, them going after your customers or you know, your other employees and that sort of thing. Think about garden leave payments. Is it, you know, do you wanna keep someone on the payroll and therefore keep them having a duty of loyalty to your company, even though they're not you know, continuing to um, actively you know, work for you? That's an option. They do that a lot in the UK. They have for a long time. I think that's something that we're gonna maybe start to see more here. I think another option might be clawback of severance payments. You know, a lot of, certainly for the executives, we pay out, you know, companies pay out severance payments. They do it sometimes in tranches and things like that. If there's a violation of an agreement with respect to providing confidential information or trade secrets or working for a competitor, then you can look at clawbacks of those uh, as well as repayment of training fees. You know, like I said, if there's a particularized program that uh, you've put an employee through or something similar, maybe that's, you know, kind of a, a hook to keep people from, you know, leaving and, and, and going to another company. But of course, you know, there's a lot of state law considerations for each one of those sorts of things, but they're just different options. And so I think that that's what we have to do is think about different options here other than the traditional non-competes. So the third kind of takeaway that I want to mention is you've got to go in now and review existing employment agreements and agreements that are freestanding kind of non-compete or non-solicitation confidentiality agreements. There is no one size fits all. I think if we, if there's, you know, one major theme that John and I have tried to express throughout this entire you know, six month series is that there is no one size fits all. And we get a lot of frustrated national, multinational, international companies that say, I can't have 50 agreements for each different state. And that's perfectly understandable, but there's a lot of different approaches you can take. So you can do a regional approach, you can do a national approach, but if you decide that you wanna have one on a national basis, you need to understand there are places that it's never going to be enforced or that you're not even allowed to put them in writing in the first place. So, you, you know, there's a couple of states that you're going to want to have a, a pullback for employees in those states. And you have to understand that the impact on the business is that you're, if this is a violation that occurs in one of these states, it's not going to get passed. So it's, a, it's something that you weigh from a business standpoint if you want to have something, you know, on a national level. But there are other different ways to, you know, approach it somewhere between uh, one agreement and 50 plus different agreements. Um, we, we can certainly help you with that, but that's, that's tough. When you're actually looking at the non-compete, one of the things that John and I see all the time is 
people define their business or their competing business as very, very broad. Um, if you are a parent company or a you know, multinational company, you've got many, many different products and lines of business, which very unlikely have anything to do with, or the most of which have nothing to do with perhaps the employee at issue in a non-compete. So you need to specify what it is that this employee is touching. What, what line of business is he involved with? What particular subsidiary, what particular company? You don't want your company to be so broad that you're trying to basically prohibit the individual from you know, working all together. So that, that competing business needs to be as narrowly tailored as possible. And sometimes that can just be the name of the, uh, by addressing the name of the employer that is a party to the agreement, something to think about. Also, obviously defining the geographic scope as narrow as possible. That's really hard these days, given that everything is like we're doing now, Zoom, and you can reach people, you know, nationally, internationally, so easy. But there are still places where individuals have, you know, customers in a particular region within a, a state or multiple states or whatnot. And so you, you, you want to tailor that as specific as possible to the business that the, you know, employee is covering for the employer. Along these same lines, the choice of law is critical. And I cannot stress this enough. You know, we've mentioned many times about how many new statutes have gone into play. I think, you know, John just again mentioned about lower income employees, you know, being, you know, statutes being passed to not pertain to lower level employees. I think there's probably 10 new statutes states that have done these. I recently read that it's also not just going to be the blue states. Some of the red states are starting to participate too. So Iowa and West Virginia have pending legislation in this area. And I think one thing that's important when people think of lower level employees, we're not just talking about fast food employees or hourly employees. I mean, in some states, the amount, the threshold level of a lower level employee could be $100,000. So you've got to be aware of what your statute says in your particular state and how lower level, you know, is defined many times it might be, you know, X times the minimum wage or something like that, but it's, it's, it's got a different definition based upon the statute and you've got to be aware of what that is and pay attention to all the new legislation. And of course, we're always tracking and paying attention to what is going on at the federal level if something's going to come out um, in terms of some sort of national federal uh, legislation. So the other thing when you're looking at a choice of law is being mindful of which states blue pencil or modify and which ones don't. This is particularly important. For example, you know, Florida will modify and will blue pencil. So if you've got an agreement that's overbroad, they will, you know, strike it, rewrite parts of it so that it make it reasonable. Other states won't. They'll just consider the whole thing unenforceable or some states will just draw a line through the offending language. And if what's left doesn't make any sense, then you as the business trying to enforce it are gonna be in a bit of a predicament. So think about how that blue pencil modification standard um, is gonna come up in the states that you're looking at. And I think it's also important to be mindful that a lot of jurisdictions are not gonna accept your choice of law provision regardless of what you put in there if it offends their public policy or there are not acceptable ties to the jurisdiction. We see often people say, well, I wanna put 
you know, X state law, because I think it's really favorable in my non-compete. I'm like, okay, well, what ties does your company have there? What ties does the employee have there? And if the answer is none and none, or even none on one side or the other, that could be problematic. So, you know, the choice of law, I can't, I can't really overstate how important, you know, the choice of law um, analysis is when crafting. When you're reviewing your employment agreements, I think it's become very clear that you've got to remove the no hire language. I think that that is just on a going forward basis that is very dangerous to subject any employee to a you shall not hire our employees away from our company. We've seen the danger in this type of no poach language. You know, in fact, we have, there are states that have on the books no poach statutes that have never been enforced or, you know, don't have any case law when you look them up. For example, Florida is one of them. But I think that, you know, if this sort of a trend continues, people might start to invoke those, of course, not to mention what's going on, you know, with DOJ and all the things that Anne O'Brien spoke about from an antitrust standpoint. So that's just kind of the, from the employee-employer angle, there's, of course, the whole area of third-party agreements that your company might have with other companies, with um, staffing firms, with things like that. You also need to review those agreements um, with a particular eye towards um, antitrust issues that uh, Anne O'Brien spoke about, certainly eliminating no higher language in those, um, beefing up areas where you're identifying what the interests are so that they're apparent on their face. Those things are very important because, you know, we talk to a lot of clients that continue to just renew the same agreement year after year after year. They've been in place for 10 or 15 years and nobody's actually read the bulk of the agreement except to change kind of the, the, the dates of operation and maybe the cost. And that's a problem. Got to go back and, and, and look at those. And now's a good time as any. And I think the last kind of takeaway, the fifth takeaway, I would say, is really training your employees, particularly the HR staff, your C-suite employees, and those that are negotiating third-party contracts on the antitrust issues that, you know, we talked about. There is that guidance out there for HR professionals. If you haven't read that um, or haven't made sure that your HR folks have read that, we would highly advise that that be provided to all of your HR individuals. But, you know, annual training on these sorts of things is really important because it's a simple email or sometimes a simple comment that companies share one to another that might get you in hot water with the Department of Justice. And given their uptick in civil criminal um, filings and enforcement under this administration, uh, it's something to be particular, particularly aware of. Of course, as John mentioned, as I've said, you know, even doing all of this we have no certainty, no guarantee of enforcement. A lot of times, as I tell my clients, it really the, the luck of the draw of the judge, because some judges will always hate these and some will like them. And, you know, you never know. But I think we're getting more to the point where it's going to be more and more problematic rather than kind of the, uh, the flip of a coin. So having said that, John, I'm going to turn it back to you and talk about what impact will all of these kind of restrictions and scaling back on non-competes have on kind of trade secrets and the litigation of trade secrets moving forward. Thanks, Joyce. I mean, you know, we don't have a crystal ball and we're not here to, to see the future. We're just trying to see the issues as they might arise. But I think that 
clearly based on the skepticism and, and legislative and judicial disfavoring of some purposes and rationales for enforcing restrictive covenants, we should all assume the relative importance of the trade secrets rationale to enforce restrictive covenants will greatly increase as skepticism on restraints on soliciting or converting customer relationships or, or employee solicitations grows and enforcement is scaled back. So what, what do you do? This certainly increases the importance of not just relying on a non-compete or a restrictive covenant, but having adequate and appropriate trade secrets agreements in place with employees, whether you know some bundling of confidentiality agreements, non-disclosure agreements, intellectual property agreements, inventions agreements, uh, work for hire agreements, all the things that protect a company's trade secrets and confidential proprietary information. Um, so that you're not just relying on a non-compete or an employment-based restrictive covenant as those perhaps become ever more disfavored. The trade secrets agreements, like what Joyce said about employment-based restrictive covenants, really need to be specifically tailored to the business context and situation, not just in the company, but to the extent possible in the employee's role to identify the technologies involved, to identify products involved, processes and employee roles. You know, most of these agreements that most of us see and have written over the years have a broad general definition of trade secret, usually been, you know, derived from the restatement, perhaps now from the uh, Uniform Trade Secrets Act or the DTSA, and that broad general restatement of the law uh, is going to be less effective than trade secrets types agreements that really are tailored to the specifics of the situation when you're trying to in, in, enforce them. Um, trade secrets audits are highly advisable. Um, they're a great idea. And frankly, most companies never do. They do them after the fact when the problem arises, right? And it's especially true to proactively review and analyze and make sure you have buttoned down your measures to maintain secrecy so that you can demonstrate actual real implementation of to meet that secrecy requirement in a trade secrets case and not to be trying to cobble it together later, but to be able to show password protections, protection of vital information on a need to know basis, not simply stamping everything confidential and thinking that that's gonna do it, but really in an analytical way, going through reviewing the procedures in place and improving them. It's also very true with regard to specifying trade secrets. You know, I've seen so many cases, I've been involved in so many cases on both sides where it's, okay, there's a misappropriation of trade secrets, there's a claim, now let's figure it out. How do we specify it? How do we detail it? How do we explain it to a court? And the days of being able to do that over the course of a litigation in discovery are numbered under statutes and procedures in a lot of states, 
specification of trade secrets is required early on. Uh, and if you're scrambling to do it in a litigation context, it's very different and very less effective than if proactively you're looking at what you're going to need to protect. You're able to define it with some specificity. You're able to identify who has access to materials or processes or information and how those things are protected. Having said, we're not here to see the future and don't have a crystal ball. Let me make a few predictions that next year or five years from now, you can call me on. But I, but I think that based on what we've been discussing, these are assumptions that you should use in your business planning and your litigation planning. First, the DTSA will continue the trend of cases migrating to federal courts. The filings in federal courts are way up and there's every reason to think that will continue. I believe at the same time though, that federal judges will start to push back on this. And the assumption that because there's the DTSA and because it's a federal court, that it's always the right place to bring a claim is something that you should look at skeptically and think about in any litigated situation. You know, federal judges will push back. I've seen it happen in cases where judges don't just sit back and let the cases develop, but they apply the stringent standards uh, on a motion to dismiss in a federal court. And I think that we should expect uh, some screening process by federal judges, especially in high volume jurisdictions where they're going to see a lot of these cases. They know that 70, 80 percent of the cases that are being filed in federal courts are cases that were garden variety trade secret or non-compete cases filed in the state courts prior to the DTSA. And they will naturally look for ways to limit access to their docket. So I think you've got to push back against the idea that because there's a DTSA and subject matter jurisdiction, you always bring these cases in federal courts. I think there'll be a blowback on that. U.S. courts, U.S. federal courts are and will increasingly attract extraterritorial claims in, in, in trade secrets cases. It's an available forum. We all need to watch how the case law develops on this, but if the case law continues to permit such filings, it's going to be a very attractive forum and there'll be more and more cases. And something that is not really in the nature of uh, prediction, but in the nature of something to think about is that if these trends towards more stingy, if you will, enforcement of restrictive covenants continues and perhaps a tighter screen on trade secrets cases that go all the way into discovery and, and towards trial. I really urge people to consider whether and when arbitration is a relatively more attractive place for plaintiffs bringing these claims. You know, it depends on the industry. It depends on what arbitral forum. I, I certainly could say from experience in the financial services world that FINRA uh, remains, you know, a very available forum with not only injunctive relief, but uh, perhaps a, a, a greater acceptance of damages claims 
in trade secrets and restrictive covenants cases than in a lot of courts. And so I would urge people who are thinking about where to bring claims and how to bring them prospectively and drafting agreements to think about arbitration and where does it make sense and where might there be uh, industry or other arbitrable forums that are more attractive venues. I've seen this for 25 plus years practicing in this, in this field as many others on the call no doubt have, but whatever happens, I have no doubt it will continue to be the case that nearly every company believes that nearly everything it has and everything it does is a trade secret or at least proprietary confidential information that's protectable through agreements. And at the same time that nearly every departing employee believes or claims they believe that nearly everything their company does is not a trade secret. And we all know the truth and the facts lie in, in between those two polarities. And that's why there's so much trade secrets litigation and will continue to be. And no matter how these statutory regimes evolve and no matter how the case law uh, evolves because of those competing tensions, we're going to continue to see a lot of activity in this area with a lot of us for a lot for all of us to do and learn. And so we look forward to keeping in touch with you all and talking about it. And Joyce, let me kick it back to you to close out. And thank you all for listening. Thanks, John. I, um, it would be nice if we had a crystal ball in this area for sure, but there is going to be a lot for us to keep our eye on in the coming years. This brings us to the conclusion of our six-month, six-part series that we have uh, conducted for you over the last several months. We thank everyone for joining us. Please let, a, let us know if there's anything that we can do to help you. We've got, obviously, a national team of people sitting in a variety of states, and we you know, cover this from the drafting all the way through the litigation stage and can help you in any way that we can. We'd also be happy to hear from you if there are particular subjects that you'd like to hear about from us with respect to future webinars, whether it's a one-off or if we you know, opt to do kind of another series. Maybe it will depend on what the FTC and what the Biden administration do. Um, certainly, if that comes out, you'll be hearing from us. Uh, we, again, appreciate your attendance. And please reach out and let us know if you have any feedback or we can help you in any way. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you, Joyce and John. If you have any questions for them, their contact information is in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening to Baker Hosts. Comments heard on Baker Hosts are for informational purposes and should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. Listeners should not act upon the information provided on Baker Hosts without first consulting with a lawyer directly. The opinions expressed on Baker Hosts are those of participants appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information about our practices and experience, please visit BakerLaw.com.